so happy Father's Day. Um, I am one of them, and so are lots of you. Um, So we're going to praise the Lord. I'm thrilled about being in this um, space with you today um, as we open up the Word of God and and, and really beg of the Holy Spirit to speak to us, um, to challenge who we are and what we believe. We're not going to go there today, but in chapter 15, verse 6, it says that Abram believed God and the Lord credited it to him as righteousness. And what God is calling together and assembling together for himself today is people who believe People who trust, people who follow, people who obey, regardless of what the cost is and regardless of what the circumstances are, our God has crafted out for himself a people who will believe him and follow him. And we get to sing songs about that in here. And then we get to go live lives that are worship out there, telling the great God of this universe and anyone who will watch and listen that we believe in the Lord Most High. I, I'm a little, um, Wow really heart rate kind of up a little bit. I'm like, someone should take my pulse. Like, not in a dangerous kind of way. I don't need, like, the medical staff to be, like, on alert today. Um, But I'm excited. Um, Just pumped up uh, about what it is that we get to hear from God today because His Word gives us life. It's nourishment to us. And so I'm going to pray and just ask um, God today that you would do what only you can do. Um, Bypass... Um, this worship team and this servant of yours and speak truths that only you can speak in ways that only you can speak it. God, we pray that your name would be lifted up in this place and that it would be lifted up by each individual heart and life and that we would be changed because of the word of Jesus Christ that's presented today. It's a holy, good, pleasing word. May we live our lives according to it. Amen. Um, so I'm wearing a tie this morning. I mean, I'll sport a tie from time to time. And so are my daughters and my son today in Main Street over here with elementary school kids. It's dressed like a dad day. And so both of those little girls over there that call me dad are also sporting the necktie and, and loving it. I'm um, just thrilled to be a dad. It's literally one of the best things that ever happened to me. My oldest is 10 years old. And I really distinctly remember the first time I held her in my arms and these thoughts that were flooding my mind and filling up my emotions and making me think to myself, wow, this baby's pretty. That's going to be a problem for her in life because she's going to try to trade her look, you know, like try to get by on her looks. You can't do that. You need to also be a woman of character. And then I'm looking at her and I'm thinking, wow, she's going to be too pretty for, like she's just too, how am I going to discipline her? And then what if I don't? And then she turns out to be like a rotten human being. Like this, this weight that's on me is a really big deal. It's, it's a privilege and an honor and an incredible responsibility to be their dad. And to have, like, you know, a lot of people in this world can call me Nick. Um, some of the kids here, they're like, Pastor Nick. And lots of people are like, Mr. Allen, that makes me feel older than I'd like to admit that I am. But there's only three little human beings on this planet, seven plus billion of them out here, but three little humans get to call me father. And that's um, an incredible burden and an incredible responsibility. Did you know that grizzly bears, the males, eat their young? Like literally the mama grizzly bear, like first thing she has to do post labor is to go on the defense because the daddy might eat them. Like bass fish, they're the same way. Male bass fish eat their baby fish eggs. Yeah, it's weird. 
You know, we know that there's an epidemic of fatherhood in the country, but you, you forget sometimes that it's not limited to humanity. Sometimes it breaches over into the animal kingdom and there's crazy bad dads. You know, we salute the lion. We love it. We think, oh, king of the jungle. But did you know that the king of that jungle, that lion, literally sits on a ledge and lazes around all day long while the women go out on the hunt and when they bring food in, he eats first, often leaving nothing but scraps for the rest of the pride? That's a bad dad. But the animal kingdom also gives us some pretty amazing fathers. Did you know, like you've heard of the emperor penguin, that dad? He's the one that houses the egg on top of its feet so that it doesn't have to sit on the sub-freezing ground. He covers it with his belly so it'll stay warm throughout the duration before it hatches. And when it does hatch, before the mom gets back, he feeds that brand new hatchling like with a mucus that's made in his esophagus. You didn't know this was going to be gross today, but it is. Like literally, he feeds the young with the spit from his mouth until the mother returns. Like that's a good dad right there. The marmoset, yeah, that's a monkey, like a little tiny monkey in South America. Those jokers are the ones that immediately take the babies once they're born and they care for them during all of the first few weeks of life. And this is why, because marmoset monkeys are typically born in twin pairs and that takes a major toll on the mother. Hey, shout out to all the twin moms out there. We know that you did your work. Okay. So this little marmoset monkey mom needs to rest. And so the dad is responsible for making sure that the brand new little infant marmoset monkeys are like cleaned off and cared for. And he only brings them back to the mom when it's time to nurse. When they're able, able to eat solid food, he's the one that feeds them. FYI, this is a strange kind of thing. If you misspell marmoset on your computer, MacBook will automatically correct it to armrest. That's not interesting, but this part is. <laughs> Two weeks after giving birth to those baby twin marmoset monkeys, you know that the mom gets pregnant again. Oh, and I thought having two kids 15 months apart was a lot. This is really, really kind of special. And the dad, he takes care of them like the whole time, literally. Those are special fathers. I learned something else in the past couple of weeks about the animal kingdom. And full disclosure, it's not specifically about dads. It's about humpback whales in general. And it's also um, not... Okay. The rest of the teaching team at Rolling Hills, like Nolansville Campus, even Jeff Simmons, who's on vacation today, I hope you're having a great time. I'm standing here in this spot to share this illustration. They all made fun of me for this one, um, but I'm confident enough to share it anyway. I don't know if they were like jealous or disinterested, but they didn't like this story. Um, I'll tell it to you anyway. Scientists have been discovering that these crazy, huge humpback whales with no defense mechanisms of their own except for their size and their fins are actually rescuing other species of animals. And that's significant because animals will oftentimes protect their own, but we don't have recorded instances in the animal kingdom where animals are protecting other species. So like if a killer whale is going to eat some sea lions, these humpback whales have teamed up in pairs and protected those little sea lions with no reward of their own because it's not like they're going to eat them right after. They're literally just being kind. And scientists are baffled when why these battles that last up to seven hours in order to protect a species that can't do anything for you, the humpback whales are stepping in and doing their duty to make sure that these animals get to live. And it's mind-blowing because scientists don't know if it's some sort of cosmic accident or if this this creature of whale is all of a sudden trying to be altruistic, I'll tell you why it is. Yeah, because I'm a scientist. No, not really. I'll tell you why though. It's because somehow in his divine creative order, the God of this universe has determined that those whales will be kind and that those whales will be rescuers and that those whales will fulfill their God-given design and purpose by helping someone else. And so we land today in the book of Genesis Chapter 14, 
looking at this fellow named Abram who has, you know, when we last saw him, he was in chapter 13 splitting up property with his nephew Lot. Abram had from the very beginning when God called him out of Genesis chapter 12 and told him to go to a land that he would show him later on, a land that he was on his way to with his father, but they settled in Haran instead. And so God called Abram out to go and to follow him. He gave him a clearly defined purpose. And he has a clearly defined purpose for you and I too. And God didn't just give him a clearly defined purpose. He also gave him a clearly described promise that God was going to do more with Abram than he ever thought possible. And in chapter 13, God continued to bless and his company and his herd grew to the degree where they needed to split ways because it was getting real confusing about which herd belonged to Lot and which herd belonged to Abram. And so they parted their ways and Lot in chapter 13, verse 12, it says that Abram lived in the land of Canaan while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. We talked about that last week and that's very important. He pitched his tents near Sodom. The Bible goes on to say in Genesis chapter 13 that Sodom was full of wicked people. I've been leading a men's Bible study with Pastor Chase this summer, and we've had two weeks of it, and it's been amazing for me. I've just been loving the content of what we're learning. And there's a fellow by the name of Al Moeller, and he's like a professor and a dean of a seminary and really smart guy, and we should probably invite him to come and talk today, but, you know, I'm here. Um, He says this, As defined in the Bible, manhood is a functional reality. That means that it's not something that we achieve just because we get to a certain age and like you hit puberty and all of a sudden you can reproduce. Like manhood isn't an age, it's not a stage, it's actually a functional reality of a purpose that's fulfilled. Manhood is a functional reality, he says, demonstrated by a man's fulfillment of responsibility and leadership. A lot of men can fertilize an egg. That's not what makes you a father. You can substitute that out. Fatherhood is a functional reality demonstrated in a man's fulfillment of responsibility and also leadership that God has a purpose for us. And so we pick up today in chapter 14 and we're going to read a whole lot of words that's full of names and geography and you're going to have to bear with me because it's a lot of fun to try to say these things and to tempt myself to mess up. No judgment here. We start in chapter 14 beginning in verse 1. It says... At the time when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch king of Elisar, Kedorlaomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera king of Sodom, Birsha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Adma, and Shemaber king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these latter kings joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. For 12 years they had been subject to Kedorlaomer. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. So you've got these nations, this five group of kings, and and they're basically in the land of Israel, and they are subject to these other far-off kings, and they pay tribute, and they pay taxes, and they literally live under their authoritarian rule. And so they have decided that it's time to rebel. So in the 14th year, after that rebellion begins... Kedorlaomer and the kings allied with him went out and defeated. They defeated all of these other peoples on the way to fight back. The Rephates and the Ashtarakarnaim and the Zuzites in Ham and the Emites in Shavakiriatham and the Hurites in the hill country of Seir as far as El Paran in the desert. Then they turned back and went to Enmishvat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazan Tamar. Then the king of Sodom the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidim. So here's these four kings 
winning battle after battle after battle after battle. And now it's time to face off against these five rebellious nations. And it says in verse 10, Now the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits. And when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they, they ran and retreated. Some of the men fell into them, and the rest fled into the hills. The four kings, those four powerful kings, under the leadership of Kedrala Amor, which is basically modern-day Iran, seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food. Priorities, possessions, provisions, all gone. And then they went away. They also carried off. This is where we connect with the story. They also carried off Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So Lot goes captive. And immediately you connect back with chapter 13, verse 12, that says he pitched his tents near Sodom because something has transpired because now one chapter later, literally in 14, verse 12, he has now pitched his tent in Sodom. He moved from near a city that was exceedingly wicked to living in a city that was exceedingly wicked. Proverbs 13, 20 says that he who walks with the wise will become wise, but a companion of fools will suffer harm. That verse right there sustained a lot of ministry for me when I started out and I was dealing exclusively with middle and high school students because I would say all the time, guys, if you walk with the wise, the Bible says that you will become wise, but a companion of fools, it doesn't say that you will become a fool. It says that you will suffer harm. There's going to be consequences for aligning yourself with fools. And teenagers would also always say to me, because you know how awesome and respectful they all are, they would like literally say to me all the time, yeah, but Pastor Nick, we know that Jesus ate with tax collectors and prostitutes and other sinners. And I would quickly respond, Jesus spent hour upon hour upon hour alone with his heavenly father, memorized uncanny amounts of scripture, and surrounded himself with an inner core of disciples that would spur him on to those good deeds. And so when you and I have checked all three of those boxes, then please, let's all, by any means necessary, go out and win the world. We would draw concentric circles, and we would say to students, and the application is so true to us, because we're all just a bunch of grown-up teenagers, that there's a circle of intimacy in our life. And that that inner circle of intimacy has to be filled with godly people who will spur us on to know and follow Jesus Christ. These are the people that are getting in our face and holding us accountable and reminding us what the truth of this word says. And beyond that, you can expand to a circle of influence. And once you've established a circle of intimacy, then you can broaden that and be in relationships with other people who some may follow Christ, some may not follow Christ, but for whatever reason need a season of influence in their life. And you can be one of those positive influences but only after that core is established. And then beyond that, beyond that circle of intimacy and that circle of influence is a circle of concern that we obviously have for the nations in this world who do not know and follow the Jesus that we know and follow, but we can't go and be of any good to the circle of concern if we're not living out a life of influence because of the strength and the stability that we have in an inner circle of believers who help us know and follow Jesus Christ. Students would always ask me, hey, Nick, Pastor Nick, how far is too far? And and what that question really means is, how close can I get to the line of sin without actually stepping over it? It's the wrong question. Can't spend our lives asking how close we can get to the edge without crossing it. We really should be asking the question, how close can I get to the person of Jesus Christ? Although I'll never actually become Jesus Christ. It's not How close can we get to the edge? It's how how close can we live like Jesus? 
there's a sin here, and it's called proximity. Because that proximity sucked Lot in. And he moved from being near wickedness to living in wickedness. You cannot plant your life right beside wickedness and expect to avoid ruin. Where's your tent pitched? One scholar that I read this week said that the whole story of Abram is a series of tents and altars. It's about where he moved and pitched his tent and where his focus was when he did. Where's your tent pitched? How, how close is it to the wickedness of the world? Because it will suck us in. And a companion of fools, according to Proverbs, will suffer harm. Better question is, how close can we get to Jesus Christ? How close can we get to his divine purpose for our life? Where is, where is your tent pitched? The story continues It says, a man who had escaped came and reported this in verse 13 to Abram the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in pursuit as far as Dan. You want to know how far that is? It's 160 miles. That's like seven and a half miles marathons on foot to chase down the armies of four powerful kings in order to rescue his nephew. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobot, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back his relative Lot and his possessions together with the women and other people. He won. And this is an interesting part of scripture because There are two firsts in this passage, like two biblical firsts that we haven't encountered before. If you start at Genesis 1, it's the first time in Scripture that you get to these two moments. First, it's the first time in Scripture that Abram is referred to as a Hebrew. And we'll know that he is referred to as the father of the Hebrew people. The Hebrew people are the sons of Eber, which is a descendant of Shem, who is one of the sons of Noah. So you can trace it back all to like Noah and the flood. He had three kids, and one of those kids was the father of Eber, and Eber was the father of all of the Hebrews. Eber literally means region beyond, a guy from far away. And so we know that we get this word Hebrew. It means someone from the region beyond. These are people who passed over. People who traversed. People who came from a long distance. And when they did, it was noted that they were different. Something was strange about them. It wasn't just a people who physically traversed from a region afar. It was a people who spiritually traversed from a region afar. Because Abram lived in a sea of crazy idolatry and polytheistic uh, little g-god worship. And he alone at this point in time was a monotheist. And so this name for him, the Hebrew, it meant Abram, the guy that worships one God. Abram, the guy that came from far away. Abram from a region that we don't understand. Abram from a place where they only worship one. He was a monotheist who worshiped one God. And guess what? The Bible says he also had friends and allies in the town where he lived. 
There's another first in this passage of Scripture. It's the first war that's recorded in the Bible for us. And there's a lot of wars in the Bible, and you can read about them all through the Old Testament. And there's even a great war coming in the New Testament. Like, there's wars happening, and this is the very first recorded one. And that means that Abram transitioned in his life. He was no longer a mild herdsman traveling with a bunch of cattle from place to place. Now he was a mighty warrior. I love knowing that side of Abram because I think it's a side that we're called to. I think it's a perspective that we're called to employ. And there's something interesting here. Even even after having never experienced or seen or been a part of a war before, the Bible says that Abram was prepared. It said that he already had 318 trained men born in his household. And if you want to say that a man is 13 years old because that's when they would have become a son of the covenant and that's when they would have become literally a son of God and that would have been the perspective of, hey, this kid has hit puberty and he's arrived at manhood, that would have been at least 13 years. I'm going to go at least 16 to 18 years old. These guys are ready to go to battle and they were born in his household and had been trained as warriors for day one. That means that for almost 20 years, Abram was raising up people to be fighters and he had never fought a day in his life. He was prepared for the battle and we can take that as wisdom for us because we cannot wait until a battle begins in order to be prepared to fight. We're not going to win without armor and we can't win without some kind of prepared might. Long before the first war, Abram was ready That's a key component of fatherhood. It's a key component of manhood. You know, you're never fully ready to be a dad. Our first kid was breached. That meant she was coming out the wrong way, and she's the reason why all of our kids had to be born via cesarean section. Well, hers came about 9 o'clock on a Sunday night, November 12th, 2006, and I remember that Susan was still laid up in the bed with an epidural, not able to get up so that when the baby woke up and started crying, I was going to be on marmoset dad duty and go and change her diaper and bring her back to mom so that she, you know, do that thing. And I remember there very, I was not prepared for this, having never changed a diaper in my life. And I was also not prepared for the phone call that I would want to make as soon as I saw it. I was literally ready to call the Mayo Clinic because what was inside that diaper is something that I had never seen in 28 years of doing what was inside that diaper. Unbelievable. And it looked like tar. And I was afraid that something was literally physically wrong with her and that there was going to be a problem. I was, Susan was crying, hey, it's supposed to look like that. No one tells you that in advance. Like no one prepares you for the moment when you're going to have to do something that you did A, not know how to do for something B that you were not expecting to see. Nobody's ever fully ready to be a dad. And this moment in the life of Abram, in Genesis chapter 14, it came before he was a dad before he finally had a son of his own. And in this moment, readiness for him indicated a plan and it included a people. He had allies. He had soldiers. None of us can do any of this alone. We need others. He had allies and he had an army and he exhibited fatherhood long before he ever became a father. Men, women, believers, we don't ready ourselves for the battles that we face as parents or the battles that we face as people in the moment. It takes preparation, a kind of spiritual dedication, allies, a circle of intimacy and accountability that will help us in the fight. You know, Abram in this moment could have said, forget Lot, serves him right. He chose that land. 
He's the one that wanted to get back to land that looked like the garden. He's the one that chose improperly, and I was going the direction that God had called us to go. He's the one that settled right beside wicked people, and he's the one that got sucked into it. Lot got what he deserved. I've thought that a time or two, and maybe even uttered those words about people in my life, people that I supposedly love and care for. Maybe you've uttered them too. It's fun to put yourself in the perspective of Abram in the story and know that you have to be ready to fight and know that you have to be ready to go on a rescue mission for the people that you love and are called to be responsible for. But sometimes we're not the hero in the story. Sometimes we're the sin-filled victim. Maybe we're not Abram here. Maybe we're Lot. And maybe this is just one really good illustration of how God always intended to deal with his people, to offer grace, to offer forgiveness, to pursue us, and to rescue us. I'm reminded in this story when Abram goes and brings his nephew back that that's what the great God of this universe did to bring us back because he's found me in some wicked situations. And with no judgment and no condemnation, I've been rescued. And he's used godly people to make that happen. Maybe he's done that for you. Maybe it was a dad who always exhibited grace in your life. Maybe it was another man or another woman or another believer who just mentored you in faith and was always willing to go that extra mile and to fight that battle for you and to rescue you and to bring you back of no reward or benefit of their own, they just exhibited grace. Maybe it was a spouse who loved you back to Jesus Christ. Maybe it was your kids. You know, there will come a moment when we all get to parent our parents. I'm hoping that when that day comes for me, I'll exhibit that kind of grace. And that you will too. The passage continues in chapter 14, starting with verse 17. It says, After Abram returned from defeating Kedorla Armor and the kings allied with him, it says, The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. So the wicked king comes. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. You know, Abram hadn't been given that land yet. Abram hadn't been given a son, much less descendants that were as numerous as the stars in the sky. All of those promises in a covenant that God had made to Abram hadn't come true yet. But here in this moment, from a guy named Melchizedek, from a nation that he didn't understand or know yet, God gave him a confirmation of that promise. This word is going to come true. The God Most High is going to bless you, Abram. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Everything that he brought back from that battle, he offered a tenth to Melchizedek. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, wait a minute, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, with raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. He just repeated the same words that Melchizedek spoke. It's like Melchizedek was there at the perfectly timed reminder. Hey, Abram, this victory belongs to God. Hey, Abram, don't be tempted to think that you're mighty and that you're a warrior because this victory belongs to God Almighty. And Abram confirmed that truth. And he said, I have sworn an oath 
to the Lord God, most high creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, wicked king, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me to Anar, Eshkel, and Mamre. Let them have their share. Let these other guys have their share. Let them have their provision. They worked hard for this, but as for me, I'm going to only take what the Lord gives me because I, Abram, want to be able to stand up and say later on, no one will ever be able to accuse you of making me rich. Only God gave me what God promised. He made an oath before the Lord. The word God most high here is a Hebrew word. It's Elyon, and it's not a personal name for God. In other places in scripture, it literally just means upper, like upper gate or upper room. It's basically the word for upstairs. And so if you ever hear people in this world talking about like, well, you know, the man upstairs, they're not being entirely unbiblical because that's a reference to God in this moment. It's a euphemism for him. But here we do know who Melchizedek was talking about. I chased a lot of rabbits this, I chased a lot of marmosets this week and a few humpback whales. Um, And one of those was trying to figure out, okay, there's a lot of perceptions about who this guy Melchizedek is and what kind of function he serves in scripture. Here's the mention that we give of him, but then he's brought back up again in the New Testament. Who is this guy? Some people believe that he's literally a pre-incarnate version of Jesus right there in the Old Testament before we get Jesus in the New Testament. And that's not a widespread view. But in Hebrews chapter 7, it does tell us that Jesus is a priest from the line of Melchizedek. And here's why. All of the priests from Moses and Aaron all the way throughout history have always been of the house of Levi and been able to trace their lineage back to Aaron. Well, not Jesus. He came from the tribe of Judah. And so for Hebrews to come out and say, well, he's our high priest. Well, wait a minute. He's not from the line of Levi. How can he be our high priest? Well, Melchizedek came before Levi. And if Melchizedek preceded Levi, that means Melchizedek superseded Levi. And so Jesus is the better priest who makes an offering on our behalf to God so that our sins might be forgiven. We get a moment where a guy named Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, who's listed here as the king of Salem, which would make him the king of peace. Let's not flip out here, but the king of righteousness who gives us the king of peace, if that's not a reference to Jesus, I don't know what is. We know that Hebrews tells us Jesus came from that. And so if we want to talk about a high priest who points us to God most high, you can start with Melchizedek, but you're going to get to Jesus. You know, there's a really big juxtaposition here. It's a table on your notes this morning. We've got Berah, who's the king of a wicked people. And you've got Melchizedek, who is priest of the most high God. You've got Berah, who offered Abram a worldly treasure and a worldly perspective and a worldly alignment. And you've got Melchizedek, who confirmed God's promises Abram had a choice, and he could have presented his life to Berah that day or presented himself to Melchizedek. He chose godliness, and he explained why. He said, I've taken an oath, past tense. I took an oath to the Lord Most High. He's the one. You and I, we can't wait to be presented with choices in order to choose character. Every day we have options, the the choice between giving in to Lust or remaining faithful, trusting in God or going our own way. That means living under his authority and not our own. If we wait to choose godliness 
until we're caught up in the middle of temptation, we will give in every time. Who's Melchizedek to you? Who's the one that points you back to the God most high in the moment where you need it? And who to you are a Melchizedek? Who are you taking leadership and responsibility over and pointing them back to the God most high? We need that in our lives. And had Lot had it, maybe he wouldn't have moved so close to Sodom in the first place. And maybe he wouldn't have been sucked into Sodom in the second place. Maybe he would have remained faithful too if he had been surrounded by godliness rather than wickedness. We need that in our lives. Those allies, that intimacy, those accountable reminders of the God that we serve, the God alone who can fulfill promises, the God alone who can direct our paths, the God alone who ultimately is our reward. Because when we're presented with those choices, we make it in light of what is right, but ultimately in light of what is our reward. What are we treasuring? In chapter 15, the the first verse says this, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. Believers in Jesus who war well are the ones who know what their reward is. Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 when he referenced treasure. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I don't think Abram trained all of those men because he was afraid. I think he trained all those men to be ready. I think he trained all those men to fulfill his purpose as a part of God's promise. I don't think that he went back to Lot just because he was a good uncle kinsman. Maybe that was part of it. Ultimately, I think he did it because it was part of God's design and purpose for his life. I don't think it's accidental or altruistic. I think he was living a functional reality of leadership and responsibility where following God meant exhibiting both in his life. I don't think he had a choice. He was following the Lord. It ought to be the same for the men in this room. We just need to broaden that. It ought to be the same for every believer in this room. That our walk with Jesus is not some status. It's not some decision. It's not some prayer we prayed or behavior we exhibit. It's a life that we live because we know that he's called us to be leaders. We know that he's called us to take responsibility. And when God is our ultimate reward, that's all we will want to do. A story like this, it keeps the heart rate up. And it leaves us asking some really good questions. Where are you planted? Is it within the proximity of wickedness in your life? Because you will fall. Where's your tent pitched? How close is it to the person of Jesus? Who are your allies? Who are the people that are going to war with you? Who are the people that are holding up your arms? Who are the people that are prepared to fight alongside you? Who are the ones who are holding you accountable to the word and the truth that you've committed your life to? What is your oath and do you want to follow the Lord? And where's your treasure? What's the reward in your life? 
the king of Bera was prepared to, or Bera, king of Sodom, was prepared to offer Abram a lot. Melchizedek reminded him who it all belonged to and what his life was to be about. Functional reality, where we exhibit leadership and responsibility everywhere we go because of the great God of this universe that we follow and to whom we are committed. Living our life that way, it might make people in the world write articles and wonder, why, did they, why are they doing that? Why are they living that way? Is it accidental? Is it merely altruistic? I mean, what's the reason? Well, the reason is a clearly defined purpose because of a clearly described promise of eternal reward that can only be found in the God Most High. Hey everyone, thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the service and we want to encourage you to reflect on today's message throughout the week. Here at Rolling Hills, our goal is to raise up a community of disciples to be the hands and feet of Christ, and we hope that you will partner with us in doing so. How do you do that? Well, here are several ways. First, join us every Sunday, either online or at one of our physical locations. Join us as we worship our God and learn more about Him and His plan for us. Second, get connected. Check out our Next Steps page on the site to find out how you can engage with us further by serving or joining a community group. And lastly, we want to invite you to partner with us financially. You can do that online through the giving section of our site. All tithes and offerings go to support our ministries both locally and internationally, enabling us to impact lives and share God's Word. Again, we are so glad you joined us today. Have a great week.